This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran, giving you eternal answers to challenging questions and providing reasons for faith in Christ. Did you have gills just like a fish when you were an embryo? Kevin Harris here with Pat Zucaran. We are continuing a series on science and the Christian faith, and we are zeroing in on evolution. Pat? Yes, and uh, I have with me two great guests from last week. They're here with us again, Dr. Ray Bolin who holds a degree in cell biology from the University of Texas at Dallas. He's a fellows of the Discovery Institute. And also we have with us Dr. Jonathan Wells. He has a Ph.D. from Yale University in Religious Studies and a Ph.D. in cell biology from UC Berkeley. Well, welcome back, gentlemen. Glad to be here, Pat. Good to be here. Yeah, we had an exciting show last week talking about proofs for intelligent design and some of the flaws in Darwinian evolution. And today we're focusing on Dr. Wells' book, Icons of Evolution. Dr. Wells, what do you mean by the icons of evolution? Well, by icon, I mean something, an image specifically, that has assumed a life of its own. Uh, The icons that I talk about are things that are presented to biology students all over the country as evidence for evolution. But what the students are being presented is actually often far removed from the actual evidence. It's sort of taken on an almost religious significance uh, and becomes an uh, an object of veneration almost among Darwinists. And that's why I call them icons. Yeah, You know, growing up in high school and going through college sciences, I uh, learned about the peppered moth and the Miller-Urey experiment and the fossil record, and they were presented to me as uh, proof, unquestionable proof, that indeed they substantiate Darwin's theory of evolution. But that's not the case, is it, as you critique in your book? Well, there are, there are many problems with those and the other icons, uh, and I myself was surprised to find them. Uh, I started out uh, as an embryology graduate student at Berkeley, uh, realizing that uh, famous pictures of embryos in textbooks uh, were did not fit the evidence. Uh, these pictures, uh, which uh, the originals of which were drawn back in the 19th century, show that humans and fish and reptiles and so on all look almost identical in their early stages. And this, Darwin himself considered to be what he called the strongest class of facts in support of his theory that we're all coming from a common ancestor. Well, when I looked at the actual embryos in the lab, I realized they didn't look like that at all. And I dug a little deeper, and sure enough, these things were faked back in the 19th century. They were known to be faked back then. Uh, They don't fit the evidence at all. The pattern of early development in vertebrate embryos, fish and salamanders and humans, is very different from what those pictures portray. Don't we have gills? Humans have gills? (laughs) Not at all. In fact, fish embryos at that stage don't even have gills. The gills develop in fish later, but there are no gills in human embryos. The structures that Darwinists like to call gills are actually folds in the neck region that give rise, of course, in humans to things very different from gills. Yes, and I'm looking at the pictures here in your book on these embryos, and they are very, very different when you look at the actual appearance of the embryos. Yes, there's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, these, these sorts of pictures do not belong in a science textbook. Uh, they might be interesting in a history textbook, uh, you know, for how science has been distorted over the years. But uh, in terms of actual evidence, they, 
they misrepresented completely. That was just the first icon I discovered. Yeah. Ray, why is it that uh, the scientific community continues to hold on to these, knowing that uh, it's not truly representing of the evidence and the facts that are out there? It's a good question, Pat, and I think for different textbook authors there might be a, a number of potential reasons. If you want to just give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, sometimes a textbook author isn't fully up to date on the latest evidence, latest understanding. Sometimes they themselves uh, perhaps have been led along and misled and aren't really aware themselves that, they're, that the icons they're using aren't, aren't correct. And I think for some cases that may indeed uh, be what's happened. But I think also on the other, what they find is that these are, these illustrate concepts of evolution that are very critical to evolutionary theory, and they make the case for those aspects of evolution very well. And there's a, there's a hesitancy to pull them out because they know there aren't other examples as good that they think will teach the concept as well. And that's part of what Jonathan brings out in the book is that, well, if, if there aren't other good examples, well, then maybe the concept itself needs to be questioned. And that's often something that they don't want to do. Well, we talked about the first one, Haeckel's embryos. Let's talk about another icon of evolution, uh, the Miller-Urey experiment. Tell us a little bit about that and what are some of the flaws you found in that whole uh, icon, let's say. Well, the uh, short background, uh, back in the 1920s, uh, scientists thought that the Earth's early atmosphere was like that of Jupiter, uh, a lot of methane, ammonia, hydrogen, water vapor, no oxygen, but a lot of hydrogen-rich compounds. In 1953, Stanley Miller, uh, in the lab of Harold Urey, uh, performed an experiment in which he uh, passed these gases past an electric spark in a glass apparatus, and after a week, uh, the, the spark was simulating lightning in the Earth's early atmosphere. After a week, Miller found amino acids in the apparatus. These are the chemical building blocks of proteins, which in turn, of course, are the chemical building blocks of living cells. Now, the, the amino acids were in a sludge, which, you know, <laughs> might have been good for paving roads, but not particularly for giving rise to life. <laughs> yeah. But that's another issue. What mm -hmm. bothered me in graduate school was finding out that uh, almost no scientist since the 1970s has believed that the early, early Earth's atmosphere was anything like what Miller used. Instead, hydrogen probably escaped into space because it's so light, and the atmosphere would have been what we now see coming out of modern volcanoes, that is, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and water vapor. Well, when you put those gases in the Miller-Urey apparatus and shoot a spark through them, you don't get any amino acids at all. And students often are not told this. Instead, they're shown the Miller-Urey apparatus and said, here is the first demonstration of how life might have originated on the early Earth. They're not told the truth, and in fact, this experiment has at this point probably no relevance at all to the origin of life. Well, it's amazing how uh, the, uh, these uh, icons continue to just be uh, put up there, you know, and unquestioned, and the critique of the other side is not presented. That's something you gentlemen were wanting to uh, present at the hearings here at, in Texas. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, although we're being cast by the other side as... Uh, religious fanatics who want to get creationism into the science classroom, that's absolutely false. My desire is simply to see that students are, first of all, taught the truth about the evidence, and second of all, that they're 
given access to controversies that are raging in the scientific community right now over the adequacy of Darwin's theory. That's what science is all about, the search for truth. seems like some of these icons need to be thrown out, and some of them need some serious correction. Or do they all need to be thrown out? At the very least, they need correction. Uh, I, If a textbook wants to show the Miller-Urey apparatus, that's fine with me, but it should show it, portray it truthfully, that is, as a experiment that once was thought to show us something about the origin of life, but now no longer does that. Right. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes even textbook authors will tell you, well, I'm, I'm using this as an historical example. Okay, that's how you're using it, but that's not what you say in the text. Mm. You don't indicate this is just history. You don't indicate this is no longer a, a, a valid experiment to, to reflect the origin of life. Um, and so they're really they used to think this, but it's been refuted. Right. They don't put it that way. They never quite put it that way. Mm. They really uh, play around very loose with, with how they describe it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the third icon, the peppered moth. This is probably one of the most popular ones out there, isn't it? Yes, I, I know a professor at a, a major Western university who tells me, he's not a biologist, he's a law professor, he tells me the only thing he remembers from his evolution class uh, is pictures of peppered moths on tree trunks. Now, the story is very interesting, and most of it is true. Uh, back in the early 19th century, most peppered moths were very light-colored. Then along came the Industrial Revolution, and most of the moths became dark-colored. There were dark and light moths in the beginning. The proportions shifted. So uh, this was attributed to pollution darkening the tree trunks, the idea being that the dark moths were better camouflaged, so the birds would eat the light moths, leave the dark ones, and that's why the shift occurred. And if true, this would have been a good example of natural selection in action, something for which Darwin, by the way, had no evidence. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, a fellow named Kettlewell did some experiments in which he released light and dark moths onto nearby tree trunks. Uh, he watched as the birds picked off the more visible ones, and then he recaptured many of these moths and found that the best camouflaged moths were represented in higher proportions in the recaptured batch. This became the standard textbook example of natural selection in action. It's still there today in some of the textbooks now being considered by the Texas State School Board. Well, the problem is, uh, first of all, in the 1970s, scientists discovered some problems with the story. The, you know, the pattern didn't quite fit the story. And they looked a little deeper, and by the 1980s, they realized peppered moths do not actually rest on tree trunks in the wild, at least not normally. Hmm. Uh, one expert reported that in 25 years, he found exactly one peppered moth out of the tens of thousands he had studied resting on a tree trunk. It turns out all the textbook photos of moths on tree trunks had to be staged, usually by putting, or often by putting dead moths there and pinning them in place. I smell a rat. <laughs> well, I smelled a rat, too. Uh, now, the change from light moths to dark moths, and actually back again once the pollution was cleaned up, that happened. Okay, that really happened. Chances are natural selection was at work. But the textbook story having to do with birds picking the moths off tree trunks has been totally discredited among people who know the story. And it's in the scientific literature, and yet many textbooks still have these pictures and give students absolutely no hint that there's a problem with the story. Let's continue this discussion right after we come back.
And now, back to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. We are discussing the icons of evolution with Pat Zucaran and his special guests. Right. We have author Dr. Jonathan Wells with us discussing his book, Icons of Evolution, and Dr. Ray Bolin from Probe Ministries. And both of these men are fellows of the Discovery Institute. Dr. Wells, we're talking about the third icon of evolution, the peppered moth, probably the first one we all learn uh, in high school or in junior high. And you were talking about some of the uh, flaws and things that we weren't told about this experiment. But also, uh, this shows natural selection, but the moths didn't become another species. You still had a peppered moth or a white moth. Isn't that right? That's correct. Even if the story were true, and much of it is not, uh, it wouldn't really get you anywhere. I mean, what I've said uh, before in other contexts, natural selection happens. Nobody really Mm -hmm. questions that. Uh, If the story were true, we would have a shift from light-colored moths to dark-colored moths and back again, Both kinds of moths were present at the beginning. Both kinds of moths are present at the end. There's no real change here, certainly no new species, and we have no idea how the moths evolved in the first place. What's interesting to me is that people promoting Darwin's theory like to tell this story even though it has been discredited in the scientific literature, and it's been discredited because the moths don't actually rest on tree trunks where the textbooks show them. Uh, One good example uh, I have of this is a Canadian textbook writer who was asked why he keeps putting these in his textbooks. And his answer was that, well, uh, students at that age tend to be highly visual, and this is just an excellent visual example. They can learn about the problems later. Wow. (laughs) Even uh, before all these, the controversy picked up about uh, peppered moths uh, in many of my presentations and lectures, as, as I would say, you know, that you start out with peppered moths, you end with peppered moths, whether it's the melanic form, the dark form, or the peppered form. Uh, this is just a change in frequency. It goes back and forth, and even Jonathan hinted, there still may be natural selection at work, uh, but what's causing this selection is what we really don't have any idea about. And it's always been instructive to me as well that, as he mentioned, Kettlewell's experiments were done in the 1950s. Well, Darwin's Origin of Species was published in 1859, and it took almost a 100 years before we had even the makings of a decent field experiment that demonstrated natural selection to any degree. Um, that's just instructive in itself. And the story we do have, well, we're not quite sure what the mechanism of selection is. Selection still might be working, but it's not bird predation, whatever it is. Right. Well, let's go on to the fourth one, the homology in vertebrae limbs. Uh, what's the argument behind that one, Dr. Wells? Well, this, this one is uh, if probably the most interesting to me because it strikes right to the heart of Darwin's theory in many ways. Uh, most textbooks show students drawings of vertebrate limbs, that it, limbs of uh, whales, uh, porpoises, birds, reptiles, horses, humans, bats, whatever. And uh, it makes the point, which actually is a correct point, that the bone structure in all these limbs is very similar. This similarity is called homology. Well, it was called homology before Darwin by people who were very good anatomists who saw it and said uh, they, they thought it was due to construction on a common archetype or design. Okay? Uh, Darwin came along and said, well, he thought a more reasonable explanation was that they 
are that the way they are because they come from a common ancestor. So an example of homology would be a bat and a parakeet. They are similar the bones, both have- the bones and the wings. There are other homologies too, but the standard one in the textbooks is the bones in their forelimbs. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and there are striking similarities in the number and position and, and structure of the bones. Uh, before Darwin, this was taken to be evidence of uh, construction on a common archetype or design. Darwin attributed it to inheritance from a common ancestor. Well, uh, how do you decide between the two? Uh, it's not as easy as you might think. Um, after Darwin, Darwin's followers tended to redefine homology so that it meant only inheritance from a common ancestor. And that's the way it's presented in most modern biology textbooks. Uh, that's, a, that's okay. You can redefine terms. The problem is once you redefine it that way, you cannot logically use it as evidence for common ancestry hmm. because that's just like saying similarity due to common ancestry, that is the definition of homology now, similarity due to common ancestry comes from common ancestry. You're just arguing in a circle. What you really need is a mechanism. Uh, if you had a mechanism showing that these similarities come from a common ancestor, then you can break the circle. To illustrate it, uh, I think foolishly, some Darwinists use uh, the analogy of automobiles. They point to similarities in different models of automobiles and say, see all these similarities? Well, this is descent with modification. But, of course, you, we all know that automobiles are designed. They didn't evolve from each other. If you if you put a Corvette in a parking lot and you let it sit there for a million years and it turns into, uh, you know, a Chevette, a Chevette, or or well, it would have to go the other way, wouldn't yeah, it? No, that's devolution. Oh yeah, okay, that's devolution. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so a Chevette, a Chevette, a Chevette turns into a Corvette. Okay, <laughs> okay. Oh, we give it a million yeah. years. No, yeah. well, the truth is, it's not going to do that. It's going to fall to pieces. Uh, well, Darwinists have proposed various mechanisms. It, tur- it turns out none of them work. Genes is one mechanism, uh, but homologous features in various organisms can come from different genes, or the same gene can give rise to different structures that are not homologous. It gets into a lot of technical detail, but the point is that in the absence of any mechanism, modern textbooks just tend to repeat this circular argument that homology due to common ancestry proves common ancestry. And I think you touched on a basic uh, flaw or gap in Darwin's theory of evolution, is that mechanism for change. Both of you mentioned natural selection Mm -hmm. and genetic mutation is not a mechanism for uh, changing from one species to another, macroevolution. Yeah, the, the big problem there, Pat, is not so much natural selection, but it really is the, the origin and the nature of mutation. Uh, most of the mutations that we find studied in textbooks revolve around things like uh, antibiotic and pesticide resistance. Uh, there are mutations involved in some of those processes. Um, you know, And the reality is, is that those are the kinds of mutations that don't really change a species. They change a very small uh, molecular biological structure within the cell, uh, and not much else is altered. Uh, we don't find mutations leading to new shapes and, and new structures, uh, new molecular machines in the cell. That's what we really don't have any evidence for whatsoever, but that's what evolution requires. And that's what you wrote about in your book, that mm-hmm. there are limits to biological change. 
Yeah, it's easy to get somebody to admit the fact that there are limits to change. Uh, you simply point to the examples of Jonathan mentioned, uh, I think, last week about artificial selection. Uh, we can select for the protein content of corn or the sugar content in beets or uh, different breeds of dog. But if people can grow to seven feet, they can grow to only three feet tall. But we don't find humans that are 12 feet tall. We don't find humans that are only a foot and a half tall at, as a full-grown adult. Uh, we can only get the protein content of corn so high, and then it stops. The variation runs out. Um, so everybody's willing to say, okay, well, all right, there's, there's limits to change. Okay, now, we, now we've got something to talk about. What are those limits and how they're put in place? I remember as a child how my textbooks uh, showed a picture of Eohippus, the little small horse-looking guy, and then a modern horse. And I always assumed because of that illustration that we see evolution of the horse from smaller horse-like animals. Mm -hmm. And that's just another icon that you mentioned, Kevin. Is it? Yes, it is. Wow. <laughs> well, it's it's now widely acknowledged, even among uh, Darwinian evolutionists, that the horse evolution picture is much more complicated and much messier than that. Hmm. You don't have a straight line from, uh, they don't even call it Eohippus anymore. Uh, what's interesting to me is that uh, this didn't become, the, the revision of this diagram to make it more complicated and more realistic didn't result in any challenge to Darwinian theory. It became a club to beat people who want to argue that evolution is goal-directed. In other words, the, the straight-line evolution of the horse used to be an argument by some people that evolution is proceeding in a certain direction by design. And now, because we know it's messier than that, this becomes an argument against design. So the bottom line is you've got to get rid of design any way you want to do it, uh, but you must not acknowledge any problems with Darwin's theory. Well, you know, a lot of people are asking, well, you know, I'm not going to read any of this stuff in my college or high school textbook. Mm -hmm. Where do I find all this good information? Well, in some respects, you, there are plenty of uh, books available that detail some of the problems with evolutionary theory that promote intelligent design. Uh, just went to Amazon.com and uh, started typing in some search words for, like, design. You, you'll find plenty of them. Uh, Jonathan's book, Icons of Evolution, will give you plenty of information as well as additional resources to go checking out in the original literature itself where these things stated. But on the other hand, my experience has been if, if you're simply observant, if you're a biology student, if you're a chemistry student, if you're a medical student, if you're simply thinking along with what you're being told, you can discover plenty of these problems on your own. The difficulty most students have is that they're too willing to sit and accept what they've been told. This is the truth. This is the way it is. And they never suspect that what they're being taught is often a, a very slanted view of the evidence, a very selective view of the evidence, and nobody ever seen few, I should say, question it. joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available for you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, 
Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.